1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 17 through 24. And before I read this, I should say this has been a difficult uh, chapter to preach through. It's been a difficult chapter, I'm sure, to listen to. Um, a lot of discussion about singleness and marriage and immorality. Um, and so today we get to talk about circumcision. <sighs> Merry Christmas. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. Let's just stop and pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us um, ears to hear today. Help us to understand what you would say to us in this passage. I pray that we would be encouraged and built up, um, that we would repent of sin and that we would trust in Christ even more. Lord, that our uh, knowledge and understanding of who you are and what you have done would grow through this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So it's been a little while since I opened with um, some church history. And sometimes I do that just to give you a little bit of uh, a glimpse of where we have come from. And I know that not everybody in here um, is interested in history, although you should be. Um, but I like to sometimes include church history in my sermons in order to remind us that, that we're actually not the first Christians. There, there's a long line of faithful witnesses who have gone before us. So here we go. For almost 60 years, Charles Hodge taught at Princeton Seminary. This was back when it was old Princeton, faithful to the scriptures and the doctrines of grace. Before the liberalism crept into Princeton, in the, especially in the early 1900s. And Charles Hodge was born on my birthday, but in the year 1797. And he died in 1878. B.B. Warfield who himself was known as the Lion of Princeton, he sat under Charles Hodge as a student at that prestigious seminary. And he wrote this about sitting under Hodge's teaching. B.B. Warfield said this, In that room of systematic theology, I think I had daily before me examples of perfect teaching." Every jot of that learning, consecrated to the master's cause, was ready to be utilized in the recitation room. One of Warfield's colleagues, a man by the name of Dr. William Paxton, said this of Hodge. He said, his intellect penetrated so far down into the deep well of truth that the water which he brought up was as clear as crystal. 
In other words, these giant brains of theology look to Charles Hodge as their master teacher. And like many theologians, Hodge was no stranger to controversy. He was not out to gain popular favor. He wrote strong articles against slavery, for example. He addressed various ecclesiastical or church issues that were coming up. And here's one that I thought was interesting. We might find this actually almost humorous today, but in, this was a real issue, particularly in the 1800s when he wrote this. So he said of dancing, along with playing cards and drinking wine, he said this, quote, They are not in their essential nature sinful, but there may be a kind of dancing, a kind of card playing, and a kind of wine drinking in their nature evil. And when not evil in themselves, it may be very wrong for professors of religion to indulge in them. They're all so associated with frivolity and worldliness that no minister or church member in this part of the country can countenance them in any form without injuring his influence and the cause of religion. Hodge's concern, sort of the, the folksiness of that in our view now aside, Hodge's concern was for a clear and unambiguous witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't want anything to come in the way of that. Now keep that in mind for a moment, and let me ask you this question. Okay, It's going to seem like I'm shifting um, topics here, but let me ask you this question. For first-generation Christians, what changes? For first-generation Christians, what changes? It could be first-generation in a family. Maybe first generation in a village or a city. Maybe the first generation of Christians in a, in a particular country or nation that had never heard the gospel before. What changes for them? Well, we could probably think of many examples, right? So it, it makes a difference if that first generation lives in a place like Las Vegas or Amsterdam or, or if they live in a remote village like in, in Papua New Guinea or, or in Ecuador. So instead of being general, when we consider this question, let's make it personal. Some of you, some of us of Logansville Church, we grew up churched, going to church, or even we grew up in Christian families. But some of you are, are genuinely first-generation Christians in your own family tree. And while we all would acknowledge that we, we all must repent of, of our own sin, for some of us with, with a variety of backgrounds, our lifestyle changes are probably going to be more radical than for others. So here's what I mean. Some families have a history of the men being angry or violent or even walking out on their families. Some, some families have patterns of drug or alcohol abuse. Some families have patterns of a variety of sexual sins or financial mismanagement or the list could go on and on and on. Some of us in here, some of you, are working hard to, to change the trajectory of your own family tree through your own repentance and, and faithfulness and conforming to the image of Christ. 
Others in here are working hard to, to pass on the faith that was, that was taught to you by your parents and your grandparents. And I praise God for faithful families like we see in this church. But I also want to remind you to come alongside your first generation brothers and sisters that are also in this church. Pray for them and encourage them. Now let's zoom back out for just a minute. And consider the the depth of change that happens when the gospel first takes root in a pagan land. Think of the, the change that happens when the gospel first takes root in a pagan land. This is the reason that I brought Charles Hodge to your attention this morning, because I wanted to read a quote um, that I found in his commentary on today's passage of Scripture. Specifically, he's commenting on the first verse that we're going to look at, which is chapter 7, verse 17, which says this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches." Now, here's what Hodge had to say about this, speaking specifically of the New Testament church. So, think of the church in the book of Acts. He says this, We can very imperfectly appreciate the effect produced by the first promulgation of the gospel, the signs and wonders and diverse miracles, the gifts of the Holy Ghost by which it was attained the perfect equality of men which it announced, the glorious promises which it contained, the insignificancy and ephemeral character which it ascribed to everything earthly, and the certainty of the second coming of Christ which it predicted. It produced a ferment in the minds of men such as was never experienced either before or since. It is not surprising, therefore, that men were, in many instances, disposed to break loose from their social ties, wives to forsake their unbelieving husbands or husbands their wives, slaves to renounce the authority of their masters or subjects the dominion of their sovereigns. He says this was an evil which called for repression. Paul endeavored to convince his readers that their relation to Christ was compatible with any social relation or position. It mattered not whether they were circumcised or uncircumcised, bond or free, married to a Christian or married to a Gentile. Their fellowship with Christ remained the same. Their conversion to Christianity involved, therefore, no necessity of breaking asunder their social ties. The gospel was not a revolutionary disorganizing element, but one which was designed to eliminate what was evil and to exalt and purify what is in itself indifferent. Now, I would argue that the gospel is actually revolutionary and subversive, but I would also agree with Hodge that it's not revolutionary in the sense that so many people claim. The gospel is not about throwing off our social constraints, but it is about submitting to the will or even the yoke of Christ. When a person becomes a Christian, he is now a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So, how does this relate to our social standing, so to speak? And just to be clear, um, when talking about social standing in this context... I'm I'm not talking about whether or not you're invited to certain parties or if you're a member of the aristocracy. 
part of the East Coast elites. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the context of this entire chapter is about marriage and singleness and divorce and widowhood. And while Paul does bring up slavery here, he's doing so as an example or an illustration. So I guess we could really say that what we are talking about here, when we talk about social status, uh, we could say our domestic social status, our, our marital status. So in the first century, they were grappling with these questions as the gospel came into a new region and made radical shifts in the lives of the people. Should these newly converted, uncircumcised Gentiles now submit to circumcision in order to avoid conflict with the Jews? Should the Jews drop their Jewishness? Should Gentiles begin to live as Jews or Jews begin to live as Gentiles? What about the relationship between slaves and masters, which was all over the known the world at this point? If the gospel brings change, doesn't that affect every part of our lives? Well, the answer to that is yes, but the key to understanding this is understanding the phrase calling and contentment. Our calling and our contentment. So the main point of this passage is this. While conversion to Christianity alters both our spiritual and moral lives, obviously, sometimes even our physical life, it doesn't necessarily alter that status in life. In fact, we should be content to live as God has assigned and called. Look again at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul is not saying anything different to the Corinthians than he is to the other churches, all of the churches to which he has written and ministered. It seems like an odd thing to say there at the end of verse 17. This is my rule in all the churches. But down in verse 26... He mentions something he calls a present distress. We're going to get into more of this uh, in more detail, Lord willing, next week. But he never says what this present distress is that the church at Corinth is going through, although it must be something significant. But essentially what we're trying to get across here in verse 17 is Paul is not asking the church at Corinth to do anything different than he is the other churches. This is the same thing across the board. So again, all of chapter 7 has to do with teachings on marriage and singleness and divorce. And these verses, 17 to 24, are a guiding principle or an exhortation. And it begins with a phrase that's, that's kind of meant as a, it's a conditional phrase. And it's kind of hard to translate. The ESV says, only let each person... Um, if we were putting this in our own vernacular, our own kind of common way of speaking, we might say something like this, just keep in mind, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to just keep in mind two related principles when making decisions in these areas of life, marriage, singleness, divorce. He's calling them to keep in mind the principles of assignment, and calling, God's assignment and God's calling. 
So assignment. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. There are a couple of ways of interpreting that as well, of course. Um, The ESV that I use uh, translates this as assigned, that word, but it also could be translated as distributed, which is often used in connection with the spiritual gifts that the Lord has distributed to each believer. So this, this might mean that we should live contentedly in the circumstances of life in which God has sovereignly placed us. Or, Paul may be referring to the, to the grace gift God has given us, like he mentioned up in verse 7, the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness. And I think as we consider these things, the assignment that God has given to each of us, we should keep in mind chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. Remember how he opened this letter. He says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we need to remember that this assignment that we've been given by God, and we're talking about our current marital status, maybe it's a believer married to an unbeliever, or or someone who is single or a widow, whatever the status is, our assignment includes the wherewithal God has gifted us graciously the ability to live according to the assignment. It is Jesus who is sustaining us and will until the end. That is so important for us to remember. And yet this is more than just simply an assignment. It's also, he says, a calling. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Calling. I don't know if you noticed this when I read through all these verses earlier, um, but some form of the word call or calling is used eight or nine times just in these few verses. And when a word is used like that so many times, a word with such significance, it should make us sit up and pay attention. What is he saying here? Here's the thing. In verse 17, the calling seems to be a status, like married or single. But clearly, the rest of the passage, all the way down through verse 24, it speaks of calling as a calling to salvation which is what Paul is usually talking about when he, when he talks, when he uses this word. Like in chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We are called into salvation. So how are these callings connected? Well, that's what this passage is endeavoring to answer here. So let, let me put this in my own words, Okay. This translating this in my own words would say something like this. Keep this in mind. When God calls you to salvation, He gives you a renewed spirit. He changes your moral compass. 
But as your status was at your calling, you should be content to stay there. You should function in the body faithfully in that state and that status. Remember, your calling to salvation is a summons to a life of Christian faith and obedience. By way of illustration of these things, um, Paul gives us now two examples, beginning with really what we could call our worldly religious status, as he separates the the Jew and the Gentile, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Look at verses 18 and 19. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. This is actually a straightforward illustration. When a person is called by God into his kingdom, whether that person is a Jew or a Gentile, ethnically or religiously, the physical distinctions don't matter. Jews didn't need to abandon their Jewishness, and Gentiles don't need to become Jewish. This whole matter was specifically settled by the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And yet, throughout the time of the New Testament, there were some false teachers who were going around teaching that in order to become a Christian, a Gentile must first be circumcised before he can be saved, or before he can become a full member of the church. This controversy, it ensnared even even the Apostle Peter. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 Peter applies the obedience to the law, not to circumcision, but to eating specific foods. Listen to these verses. Paul writes, But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain certain men came from James, that is in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul is saying that the truth of the gospel isn't concerned with the the physical outward marks, but rather with simple, faithful obedience. See, Abraham was not saved because he was circumcised. Rather, he believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The just shall live by faith. See, in the minds of the Jews especially by the time of Christ and and the early church. Circumcision and the keeping of the law, they were virtually synonymous. They were the means by which a person attained a a right status before God. And this keeping of the law that that kept the, the Jew and the Gentile separate, but in Christ they are one. And this sort of separation is gone. It doesn't matter any more than does the the status of married or unmarried. Paul is saying this to a largely Gentile church in Greece. 
But just as they do not need to take on the physical mark of, of circumcision in order to have a right standing before God, neither do they need to change their marital status to have a right standing before God. Instead, they should be content with their assignment and their calling, the gift given to them by God. Now, as we think about calling, I want to make one quick kind of excursus right here. Sidebar, one quick little journey off to the side. This calling is an effectual calling. That's important to remember. It's an effectual calling. In other words, it's not like, it's not like God is calling on the phone hoping somebody just picks up. It's a calling that has an effect. It's a calling that works. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 10, paragraph 1, puts it like this. In God's appointed and acceptable time, He is pleased to call effectually by His Word and Spirit those He has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by His almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet He does this all in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by His grace. So the idea of keeping the commandments of God, there in verse 19, it's simply bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what it means. After all, part of Jesus' great commission was this phrase, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The call of the gospel is a call that is mighty in its effectiveness. The call of the gospel in the heart of a sinner is a call that saves. Verse 20. Paul continues, he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. This verse is, is really a summary of, the, of Paul's teaching between these two examples. He reminds us that this isn't merely about circumcision. This isn't merely about slavery. This is about contentment and calling. Your spiritual status is established by your relationship with God through Jesus Christ and not by any other means. In other words, if you're single, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, if you're married to an unbeliever, if you're married to a faithful Christian, you're not any less of a Christian or more of a Christian than anybody else. If you're married, that doesn't mean you're on a higher godliness scale or whatever. Our spiritual status is established by our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that if you're single, you shouldn't desire to marry and have kids. After all, that's a part of the creation mandate. This is about finding contentment in Christ and in His calling and His assignment for you for right now. We all know that that, that calling and assignment can change. I've been around long enough and have counseled enough people to know 
that if you cannot find contentment in Christ in your singleness, you will not find contentment in him if you're to marry. I've been around long enough to know that if you cannot find contentment in Christ in your childlessness, you will not find contentment in Christ when you have kids or grandkids or whatever. We should move on to example number two because Paul here turns to the thorny issue of slavery or our worldly social status. Verses 21 and 22 says this, Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Now this is a, it's actually a thorny issue these days especially because slavery is closely associated in our minds with race. But that really isn't, it really wasn't in Paul's day. It doesn't make it any less right and we're not exclude, uh, excusing slavery. Um, and I'm sure there were some instances and examples of a race-based slavery in the New Testament era But the point that he is purposefully making here is that our spiritual status changes when a person comes to faith. As I've been saying, yet any change in social status makes no difference on our salvation whatsoever. Or to put it in biblical or even Pauline terms, in Christ there is neither slave nor free. We are all just one. The Christian slave has been delivered from slavery to sin. He has been delivered from slavery to the law. The Christian slave has been delivered from slavery to the world. He has been delivered from slavery to the devil. He has been delivered from slavery to death. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 reminds us of our past slavery using extreme terms and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. We were slaves to the world. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind we were slaves but God called you effectually he called you out of your sinfulness and your slavery and he made you freedmen in fact we are the Lord's freedmen even those who are his and and are yet in the lowest situation of life the lowest class of people, if they are his, they have been adopted as sons. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, heirs according to the promise. And yet, Paul, in his advice here to the people of Corinth, he's still, he's still very practical. Gain your freedom if you can. If you can get out of your slavery, go right ahead and get out of it. Gain it if you can. But if this is your station in life, then you must serve Christ honorably as you serve your earthly master. Look again at verse 22. 
For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. This, this is the irony of Christianity. Those who were free to sin are now slaves to our true master and Lord. And those who are slaves of sin have been set free by the Lord. Let me read for you Romans chapter 6. Just verses 15 to 23. Just listen to this passage. Romans 6, 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As Paul concludes this, he urges them in in their contentment He urges them in their calling to remain with God. Remain with God. Look at verses 23 and 4. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him, there let him remain with God. In bringing up the the concept of slavery as an example here, Paul gives a, a different and, and even a more urgent meaning to, to what it means to be bought with a price. The price of our freedom um, from sin, our freedom from sin, our freedom from death, the price of that freedom is the shed blood of Christ. And to be purchased by the blood of Jesus is to be made, be made into one who will never again be a slave to sin. If we have been purchased by Christ, we will never again be a slave to sin. The book of 1 Peter says this, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul The Apostle Paul, all through this chapter, has been admonishing us to live with contentment, to live contentedly, to not be consumed with our social status. But these things, we acknowledge, these things are deeply personal issues. They're deeply personal. So now zoom back in as we think about um, Hodge's comments and the question, what changes when the gospel comes to a new generation. 
the city of Corinth, immorality was so rampant that some of these new believers, some of these new converts to Christianity, they preferred abstinence even in their marriages. Some were in blended marriages. And they thought that that divorce was preferable to remaining married to an unbeliever. Others were single or were widows, and, and, and no doubt they struggled with that. And so Paul's instruction in all of this is just keep in mind the Lord's assignment and calling in your life. For you were purchased as a slave of Christ and to his righteousness. And remember... Whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. Remain with God. Abide in him. Christians, we do not live in our situation of marriage, whatever that is. Maybe to an unbeliever. Maybe to involuntary singleness. We don't even live in slavery alone. We don't live this alone. We are not alone. We go through all of these situations, whatever the situation is, we go through all of it knowing that he has promised, even as we read from King Solomon this morning, he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. He has promised to be with us always. But this passage isn't only about what God does. We are called here to Remain in him, to abide with him. Abide, remain in sweet communion with the one who calls, the one who regenerates, who who justifies, who adopts us as his children, who sanctifies, who perseveres, who glorifies us. We are called to find our contentment in the one who died that we might live, in the one who became sin that we might be set free. We are called to find our contentment here in Christ who has called us, who has called us his children. Pray with me. Lord, as we consider these things, as we think about this, as we hide your word in our heart, I pray that you would conform us, that you would comfort comfort the afflicted, that you would be our comfort this day. As we consider the death of Christ, as we consider the work that he did on the cross, uh, that he became sin, that we might become his righteousness. As we come to the table and we eat and drink and proclaim his death until he comes, remind us, remind us of the truth that I will never leave you nor forsake you. Remind us that as Christ came as a child, that he was born king, and that even though he has gone to prepare a place for us, he has not left us alone, but has left us with another comforter, a spirit who is now at work in our hearts, in our minds, conforming us to the image of Christ, using your word to transform us into Christ-likeness. Lord, we rejoice today that our King has come and that He sits on His throne. And we long for the day when He will return and we can be with Him forever.
And until that day, Lord, I pray that we would be comforted, that we would be reminded of your calling, and that we would be content to be obedient to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.